Well, we come this morning as we pick up where we left off in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12. There's a change in topic as Paul writes, and so for the next couple of chapters, 12, 13, and 14 actually, we're going to, if you could put it this way, we're going to be kind of looking at a different series where we talked about um, previously the Lord's Supper for several weeks. We're going to spend the next, I don't know how long, coming weeks looking at spiritual gifts. When it comes to discussing spiritual gifts, there are a wide variety of views. Even within Orthodox Christianity, there is disagreement and debate all across the spectrum of the discussion. Some believe that Christians should take um, spiritual gift assessment tests in order to determine what your specific gift is so that you can better serve the church. Others, like me, believe that you'd be better off just getting busy and serving and not bothering with the tests. Because if, if you're like me, you'll just end up taking the tests until you get the answers you want. But usually when it comes to discussions around spiritual gifts, the debate centers, at least these days, the debate centers around either the continuation or the cessation of the so-called sign gifts that we see in the New Testament. Uh, gifts of prophecy and healings and speaking in tongues and, and so forth. And while we are going to get into those debates in the coming weeks, we're not really going to get there today. Really, we're just going to do an introduction to these next couple of chapters this morning. But I wanted to bring this up because one of the things that those discussions of, of spiritual gifts, they often miss, is that the Holy Spirit gives gifts in order to build up the church. And yet all too often, men have used the debate and the discussions in order to stir up division and strife. So for example, in 2013... John MacArthur wrote a book entitled Strange Fire, where he critiques the charismatic movement, especially those wings of the movement that are more extreme and sensational. It's not out of character for MacArthur to write about this. He's written and spoken of these things many times before, and he stresses always the need to hold fast to the Word of God. And he does so not in a way that stirs up division among the faithful, but rather in a way that calls out false teachers, which the Bible frequently does and calls pastors to warn their churches about. Well, that year, 2013, as that book was coming out, Grace Community Church, where MacArthur pastors, they held a conference to discuss these issues. This is a conference where the Word of God was taught, um, warnings were given, truth was proclaimed, but there were two other nationally prominent preachers who happened to be in the neighborhood at the same time at a different conference, ironically called the Act Like Men Conference. Thanks. And they decided to use that event, the Strange Fire Conference, in order to stir up division and strife. And at least for one of them, he also used it to promote his own little book. See, Mark Driscoll in particular, but also James McDonald, 
They disagreed with MacArthur's stance on sign gifts, but instead of listening and discussing, learning, they crashed the conference. They purposefully caused a stir, both in person and online, and then they lied about how they were treated by the security team there at Grace Church. Driscoll claimed that his books were confiscated. I think that McDonald said at one point that someone had taken his phone, but those claims were proven to be false. They were lies. Ultimately, both Driscoll and McDonald were disqualified from ministry for other reasons. And to this day, both have refused to repent. They were removed from their pastorates, and they continue to bring shame to the Church of Jesus Christ. I named them because I've got books by both of them in my library. Probably you do too, maybe. These are guys that have been influential over the last couple of decades on the church in America, and they're disqualified from ministry but refusing to repent about it. Remember, spiritual gifts are gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit to Christians in order to build up the church. And yet false teachers continue to creep in among us and attempt to use the good gifts of God to stir up division and strife. This is exactly where the Corinthian church finds itself on this very issue. Let me read just the opening paragraph of this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes this, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Let's just stop again and ask God to help us to understand. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need today. We know that our greatest need is Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would proclaim from our hearts this morning, Jesus is Lord. Not just with our mouths, but that we would actually believe that statement. Proclaim that statement. Hold fast to that statement. That Jesus is Lord. Guide us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the overarching themes of this letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians here, is his correction of this church over their, their factionalism, their divisions. The church is divided over all kinds of issues. Remember, they, they had their favorite preachers. Some were involved in immorality, while, while married couples were practicing abstinence. They were bringing lawsuits against each other. They were flirting with all kinds of idolatry and immorality. And as we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 11, there were even divisions when they would come together for worship, specifically when they would come to the Lord's table. In all of these cases, one of the, one of the symptoms of the divisions of the church was that there were those who thought very highly of themselves whether this was because of their wealth, as in chapter 11, or because of their own sense of spiritual gifting, their own knowledge. And in that realm, one of these areas 
where they really thought very highly of themselves was in the area of knowledge. Paul has addressed this in this letter a couple of times already, but as usual, I don't know if you've caught this as we've worked through 1 Corinthians, Paul will touch on a subject in the middle of a thought of something else, and then he'll circle back later to address it more thoroughly. He does that in chapter 10, for example, when he when he talks about the cup of blessing that we bless, and then in chapter 11, he, he talks about communion more fully. And so in chapter 8, he had addressed their wrong application of knowledge by saying, in fact, just turn back a couple of pages to the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, as we said when we were back there in chapter 8, Paul is not pitting knowledge against love. He's not saying knowledge is unimportant. He's not saying don't worry about reading or, or studying your Bibles. All you need is love. Love is all you need. That's not what he's saying. Knowledge is important, particularly knowing God. And the only way to know God is through His Word. But the only way to to know and understand God's Word is through the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, as he opened up this letter back in chapter 1, he started by, by writing this. He said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Over and over again, he is talking about knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. As Christians, we have been enriched in all speech and all knowledge, he says, and that has come through certain gifts of grace that have been given to us through the Holy Spirit. And so now, in chapter 12, Paul comes back to address these gifts of grace, these spiritual gifts more fully. And and really, this section, as I said, it goes all the way through chapter 14. It's not a coincidence that chapter 13 is in the middle of this, right? The love chapter. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But many Christians here in chapter 12... We come to this chapter, we come to chapter 12 in particular, to either, to either find what we think is a, is a good list of spiritual gifts, or maybe to learn about those particular gifts that Paul talks about here, but we often skip over these opening first couple of verses. And the reason is because it's a, a, kind of at a, at, a, at a casual reading of verses 1 to 3, it can be a little bit difficult to understand. It, just like the opening of chapter 8, these verses help us to understand Paul's intention for the entire passage. Okay? In fact, let me, let me tell you now what his intention is. 
His intention is for us to come to the understanding that everyone who truly confesses Jesus is Lord is directed by the Holy Spirit who has been given certain gifts by the Spirit in order to do our part in building up the church of Christ. Everyone who truly confesses Jesus is Lord does so because we have been directed by the Holy Spirit who has given us certain gifts in order to build up the body of Christ, to build up one another in love. And this affirmation, it really should put a stop to the claim that that some faithful saints are more spiritual than others because they show evidence of having as as one commentary said, some of the more exciting and and electrifying spiritual gifts. I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit trail here, but this should squash any notion that pastors or elders or deacons are more spiritual simply, or, or better Christians even, simply because of their office. I hope that we understand this. It is true that there are character qualifications in the New Testament for those who should and should not be an officer of the church, an elder or a deacon. But for the most part, these are characteristics that we all should be aspiring to. We all should be striving to live lives that are above reproach. We should be thought well of by outsiders. We all should work to manage our own households well. Should we not? Too many young men with a desire to argue theology, they see the pastorate as a good place to do that. Combine that with a yearning to be the smartest guy in the room, which, by the way, pastors are often not. (laughs) It's a recipe for disaster. Spiritual gifts are not for showing off. They're for building up the church. And they're most often exercised in ways that few people ever see. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get into some more of those things as the chapters unfold. But you can see that the concept of spiritual gifts today can be such a divisive subject. But that doesn't mean that we should avoid biblical topics that we might disagree on. Not at all. Instead, we should should do so. We should address these issues and these topics with love for one another and a desire to see Christ's church strengthened. And so when it comes to spiritual gifts, we should remember Paul's theme. In fact, listen to how Paul begins and ends this section of his teaching. So he writes down in verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he finishes this whole section in chapter 14. In verse 12, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, he's talking about gifts, he says, Strive to excel in building up the church. In verse 26, he writes, Let all things be done for building up. And then finally, in verse 40, as he finishes this section, he says, But all things should be done decently and in order. We cannot forget the fact that Scripture is eager to see the church of Christ strengthened and able to build itself up in love. Now, the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that as Paul has dealt with 
questions that the Christians of Corinth have sent him. He started by addressing what, what we might call um, body life issues first, relationship issues, and really in chapter 7 through the beginning of chapter 11. But then starting there in the middle of 11, when we started talking about the Lord's Supper, he addresses, and really through chapter 14, he addresses issues related to to gathered or assembled worship when we come together. Now, we don't know exactly what the church said to Paul in their letter regarding these gifts here. But in chapter 14, and we're going to see this um, in the weeks ahead. In chapter 14, he's going to spend a lot of time specifically addressing speaking in tongues. And so by working backwards from that, we can see how this teaching in chapters 12 and 13 sets the stage for what he's going to say in chapter 14. Now just keep that in mind as this sort of unflows, or unfolds, I guess is the word, over the next couple of weeks. So I think that kind of sets the, the entire context or the, sets us up for these next three chapters. And so let's dive into these few verses Uh, Beginning with verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Much like ourselves in kind of living in the modern West here, Corinth was a church that was surrounded by by a pagan spirituality. Think back to what you know about the city of Corinth or to ancient Greek culture in general. Consider all of, the, uh, all of the ancient Greek temples. You, you've seen ruins that still stand these days. Particularly in Corinth, you may remember, I said this early on in our study, the temple of Aphrodite and its temple prostitution. Corinth was a center for Greek culture, thought, philosophy, etc. There was also a substantial Jewish population in the city of Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us that that Paul and the church, while they were there, while he was there, had had a run-in with the Jews who had rejected Christ. And so, so before Paul can explain the true nature of spiritual gifts, he needs to refute both pagan and Jewish versions of spirituality. And he does so in just three sentences here. And as he begins this section, he he actually says, now concerning, and, and the word there is, the spirituals. He doesn't say the word gift. In fact, in some of your Bibles, it might be in italics. It might say ones. I think some versions say spiritual ones. But he actually says, now concerning the spirituals. That could mean either spiritual people or spiritual things like gifts. In verse 4, he does use a word that is translated as gifts. And so most Bible translations add that to verse 1 in order to direct our attention to the rest of the chapter. But at the end of this entire discussion, all the way in chapter 14, verse 37, Paul refers specifically to spiritual people. And so we should read this as bookends. This is about the people. Paul begins and ends by referring to spiritual people as he explains the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. So the primary concern of these chapters is what it means to be spiritual in the context of public worship. Notice something else he says here. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. And then down in verse 3, he says, I want you to understand. 
those phrases do three things. First, they're actually kind of a, a bit of a subtle rebuke to those in the church who claim to have knowledge. We might say something like, I'm going to tell you some things so that you'll no longer be the ignorant people you are. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying there. Second, these statements, they, they sort of act as group divisions. So there's, there's three different groups of the spirituals that Paul is addressing, but we'll get into that in just a minute. And the third and really the most important thing that these phrases do is they emphasize uh, the importance of this, po- of this topic. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to understand. Spiritual people have spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And of these these groups of the spirituals, only one, and we can see this very clearly here, only one um, is truly of the Spirit, right? Right? Paul has to correct the other two, and he starts with the pagans, actually. Look at verse 2. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Here's the first thing that we should understand here this morning. Pagan spirituality only leads to confusion. Pagan spirituality only leads to confusion. Paul is talking about Specifically, their worship before they were converted to Christ. It was a a spiritual life that was filled with confusion. From a Christian perspective, from our perspective as, as Christians, the essence of paganism is to be deceived by things that are not real. Right? The essence of paganism is to be deceived by things that are not real. Does that sound familiar? As we look at the world around us, does that not sound familiar? To be deceived by things that are not real? People all around us are deceived by lies all the time. We're seeing it, it's not even in slow motion anymore, it's almost sped up. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul describes this sort of, sort of pre-conversion, pre-Christianity paganism that they lived in like this. He says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the essence of paganism right there. Especially those last two, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this verse 2 here in 1 Corinthians 12 is kind of known for being hard to translate and therefore interpret. But notice That's not actually the idols themselves that are doing the leading, right? Let let me read this again. You know that when you were uh, pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Um, 
The idols are mute. This is a common way to describe idols in the Old Testament in particular. So the psalmist, for example, will write in Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, he will say this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they make no sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Look again here at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Now, Paul isn't confused about how they were led, right? He's not saying, well, however you were led. I don't know what it means, but however you were led. It's not his point. He doesn't want to get into it here. But James does. In fact, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he writes this. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. They were led by their own desires. Now compare that idea of being led astray, being led to mute idols, however they were led by their own sinful desires. Compare that idea with the leading of Paul or John Mark will actually use the same word in Mark chapter 14, verse 44. He says this, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. It's the same concept, right? Lead him away under guard. Just a little bit later in chapter 15, Mark continues. He says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now, I'm guessing that you probably have an idea about who we're talking about there. That was Jesus being led away and led to the cross, being led to his death. Both ideas of being led, either by the Roman soldiers in the case of Christ, or by our own desires, however we were led, they indicate a, a captivity, don't they? As Jesus is taken captive, taken into custody by the Roman soldiers, as our own desires lead us to mute idols, the difference is that paganism holds people captive to these lifeless idols. Whereas Christ went to the cross willingly. In fact, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus may have been led by the Roman soldiers, but he was in control. He did this of his own accord. Paganism holds people captive to lifeless idols. Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 says this, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, 
Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. The Greeks in particular were a people who who prided themselves in their intellectual ability. They prided themselves in their philosophical pursuits. Even to today, there are those who quote the Greek philosophers, right? Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. We look to the Greeks often. Yet they didn't come into paganism because they thought or they reasoned their way into it. They didn't look at all of the world's religions and say, this makes the most sense. I just made this. It must be a god. Paul is saying that they didn't know any better. In other places, he will use the phrase, their foolish minds were darkened. I'll say the same thing about the Romans who famously adopted the Greek culture and and adopted Greek paganism as their own, the Roman Empire that lasted for a millennia. Listen to what Paul says about the Romans in Romans 1, 22 and 23. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is at the root of their confusion. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The gods of paganism are mute. They are lifeless. They are unable to intervene or to help their devotees. Just this week, I think it was actually Friday, um, I was listening to a podcast called The Briefing. Some of you have heard of The Briefing. It's Al Mohler of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, five days a week, it's just 15 or 20 minutes long, talking about the news. And he said this, Several headline stories tell us that American adolescents, indeed Americans in general, even American children are suffering from mental illness and anxiety at record rates. The New York Times this past Sunday ran not one, but two major stories. One was on the front page. The headline, it's life or death, U.S. teenagers face a mental health crisis. Inside the same newspaper, as if the other article hadn't even run, was a major article. The headline, The City, meaning New York, has a loneliness problem. Then just days before, the Wall Street Journal had announced that children as young as eight should now be screened for anxiety because, of, uh, because the mental illness, the stress, the anxiety problem has now been downshifted to the very young, even to elementary age. Our world is crying out for help, and the gods of this world are mute. They cannot answer. Do you understand that? Our world is crying out for help, and the gods of this world that they are crying out to cannot answer. But we have a God who speaks. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the image, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the God who speaks said this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The God who speaks said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meanwhile, the world is looking to science. The gods of science change every textbook edition, faster than that these days. The gods of this, the people of this world are looking for the gods of entertainment. The gods of, you name it, they're looking for gods all kinds of places, except for the one true God who actually speaks and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's not just the pagans that Paul has had to contend with in Corinth. Um, While he was there, uh, Acts chapter 18 recounts his time in Corinth. And in verses 12 and 13, it tells us that that while he was there, in fact, it says when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region around Corinth, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Here's the problem. If pagan spirituality leads to confusion, this kind of of Jewish spirituality leads to contradiction. See, there were three groups of people in Corinth. There were the Greeks, who were pagan. There were the Jews. And there was the church of Jesus Christ. And the problem that the Corinthian church was having was that they were were made up of people uh, from both backgrounds, both Greek and Jew. Uh, both with a, with a pagan religious background and with a Jewish religious background. And they were, they, were, uh, they were constantly longingly looking back to the world. They were constantly and longingly looking back to their old lives. And so there were, there were Christians who were saved out of paganism and were looking back longingly at paganism. There were, there were Christians who had been saved from Judaism and they were looking back longingly to Judaism as Paul himself had been saved from. And throughout the New Testament, it was these, these powerful, unbelieving Jewish elites who proclaimed Jesus as anathema or accursed. Paul knows this because this was his old life. This was Paul's life as he went around persecuting Christians. The official teaching of the Jewish leadership was that Jesus was a blasphemer and therefore accursed. The word is anathema. And Paul will explain why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this. 
Since we have such a hope, meaning in Christ, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It was the Jewish leadership, the Jewish elites, who rejected the Messiah, called him a blasphemer, and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. This was their promised Savior. And yet they rejected him, preferring instead to submit to the yoke of slavery to the law. This is a contradiction because all of the law and the prophets point to Christ. The Jews call him accursed, blasphemer. We know that you are from the Lord. In fact, turn to John chapter 3 real quick. opening verses, there was a man of the Pharisees, the Jewish elite, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now just stop there. That is a condemning statement. We know that you are a teacher from God. Nobody can do this unless, the, unless God is working. By the end of John's gospel, by the end of Jesus' ministry, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We also know that Nicodemus is one who likely believed later. But you can see the contradiction We know that you must be from the Lord, from God, and yet they rejected him. Jews call him accursed, but Christians, through the Spirit, call him Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So paganism leads to confusion. The Jews are tied up in contradiction, but the Spirit brings this confession. Jesus is Lord. Now this isn't a, um, these aren't just, uh, what Paul is not saying is that nobody can formulate these words unless the Holy Spirit guides that person, right? We know that there are unbelievers who can say the words, Jesus is Lord. He's saying, confess this, believe it. Nobody can confess Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit doing the work. The purpose of these opening verses 
It's not really to condemn the ignorance of the pagans and the Jews, but rather to focus us on this last phrase. Jesus is Lord. This is the saving confession of salvation in Christ alone. It's made by every single Christian. And it can only be truly confessed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this isn't about these miraculous sign gifts but rather the Holy Spirit leads every believer to this normal, ordinary, yet genuine and heartfelt confession. Jesus is Lord. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We are here to proclaim, we come here every week to proclaim, Jesus is Lord. And we do so because the Holy Spirit has called us, has assembled us together, has indwelt us, has, is a seal of our uh, salvation, a guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, until we can see our Lord face to face. And so we gather every single week to proclaim Jesus is Lord in order to build up this church. This has to be the, the basis and the foundation for the building up of the church. We can serve one another all we want. If we don't confess Jesus is Lord, it will all be for nothing. We can eat meals together. We can paint rooms together, tear out carpet together. But if we don't confess Jesus is Lord, we will only either be in contradiction or confusion ultimately. We gather for the purpose of holding fast to this confession. Jesus is Lord and we praise God that the Holy Spirit gives us these words. Pray with me. Father, we do confess this today. Jesus is Lord. We do this from hearts that have been quickened by your spirit that have been made alive because without the spirit of God we are dead in our trespasses and sins we're following the course of this world we're lost in the paganism and confusion that's all around us Lord we might not think of the world especially Americans as being into paganism but Lord, we can see it all around us. Believing the lies of things that cannot speak. Lies of our own making, our own imaginations, gods of our own, from our own hands. But Lord, I pray today that you would direct our attention to the God who speaks. The God who spoke and gave his life as a ransom for many. To God the Son who said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, as we approach the table today, it is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is to proclaim, to be reminded again that Jesus is Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.